Hi, this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. Yes, that's right. And we're here on a Friday night with nothing better to do. With nothing better to do. It's better than last Friday night when it was literally, and I yeah. use the word literally accurately, unlike a lot of other people, 25 below Oh, Fahrenheit. I don't blame my furnace. I blame my house, which is like the wind just blows through it. It was built by Cass French, the bait man, I found out a hundred years ago. And that is somebody who sold bait to fishermen. But anyway, my furnace conked out. And so I had to call plumbers. They they did come. His wife always comes with him. She's like his receptionist bookkeeper. And she does all the- Yeah, a lot of the small businesses. Right. She does all the talking for him. So whenever, it seems like whenever they have to come, it's at night on a Friday night. And (laughs) But I was second on their list. And she said they were- gonna be busy all night long and it turned out my furnace it did need a new part called uh i can't remember a something or other circulator or something but i found out something i've never known in all my years of living in cold weather that is uh you should not set your thermostat for more than 10 degrees apart from each other so like if you have a programmable thermostat you shouldn't have it like i do at 55 at night and then go up to like 68 during the day. I didn't really do that, but then when it got cold, I would come downstairs and it would be like 48 down here. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I'd try to turn it way up. And the thing is, she said, she told me when it's this cold out, you should have it at 68 and you shouldn't have it go below 58 because the furnace has to work harder to catch up. Mm-hmm. And the part that they had to replace added to the problem. So by the time they got here, it was 40 degrees in my living room. Uh, i've been there before for like a couple weeks before i would come downstairs and i'd text you i'd come down at seven in the morning or whatever and i'd be like it's it's 48 in my living room right now what the hell (laughs) i have i had the programmable thing now i'm doing it by hand because i have to look up how to program it because it's a pain in the ass and upstairs i have one of those old ones yes the round ones and so you know this is how we grew up too and stuff I'm like, I'm not turning my thermostat up to 68 because I don't want to waste oil. But it turns out that I need to keep it between 58 and 68 and that will save oil. Yes. So now it, it was actually today and in, in the living room it was like 64 and I'm like, oh, it feels too warm. It feels too warm. But I'm like, because my oil tank as usual is almost empty. I'm like... I At know, least it's, long, it wasn't story. that cold out today. Yeah, and we're supposed to have an abnormally warm February. And on one hand, it's like, that's great for the for the heating bill. But on the other hand, it's like, here comes the climate mm. change. We're all yeah. we'll die. I know, we'll die before it gets Well, really the bad. heat in our house is always set at 72 I know. I know. or it's 74 like now. sauna in your house. Uh, should we get going, do you think? Yeah. I mean, by going, I don't mean leaving. Um, I, I mean that was our show. Yeah, I hope everybody enjoyed. But, <laughs> yes, so, you have so an update. Do I do. Thank you. Yes, okay. I do. It's an update to episode seventy-one that we did in December two thousand nineteen. Wow, no. that was a long time ago. Our yeah. third anniversary special, Maine murders and more. Oh yeah. And this update is mostly from a Keith Edwards story that was in the Kennebec Journal hmm. a couple days ago, and that's Augusta, Maine's daily newspaper, which I still get. It's thin, little, sad tissue paper like oh, delivered into my box out front. I keep thinking I should just. You know, the digital is good because since that company owns five of the six daily newspapers in Maine, you get access, digital access to all the papers. But I just cannot give up the paper. Like, First of all, it's good to wrap the cat 
poop when I <laughs> clean out the cat litter. But also there are things like the obituaries and the classified ads, the legal ads. When I was still working, you could see a lot. You, you'd you have a leg up on like developments because I was doing mm-hmm. covering um, commercial. De- but anyway, that's why am I even going into that shit, right? Okay. Nicholas Lovejoy, 32, on Monday, February 6th was sentenced to 42 years in prison for murdering Melissa Sousa, his longtime girlfriend and the Uh. mother of their two daughters, in Waterville, Maine, in October 2019. And the sentencing was at the Capitol Judicial Center in Augusta. Uh. That's where Waterville and Augusta's big trials are now. Lovejoy had entered into a conditional plea agreement in May 2022, pleading guilty but it allows him to withdraw the plea if he's successful in appealing Superior Court Justice William Stokes' ruling in 2021 to not suppress evidence in the case. Normally, if you do a plea agreement, you can't appeal. That's it. You're guilty. But in this case, it's conditional appeal. And I think the reason it took so long to be sentenced after he pled guilty a couple of years ago was there was such a backup in the courts because of covid and the lack of defense attorneys in the state, that since he pled guilty, okay, he's going to serve prison time anyway. Anyway, the appeal, which they said they're going to file this week or next week, Lovejoy's lawyer said that the Waterville police kept talking to him after he asked for a lawyer, Mm. and that evidence collected at his apartment was collected after police entered without a search warrant the night Melissa Sousa's friends reported her missing in Waterville. Police said they went into the apartment to make sure the couple's eight-year-old twin daughters were safe after Lovejoy had left them alone to go, quote-unquote, looking Uh, for Melissa. Do you remember that one? Yes. Um, Police found Melissa's body in the basement of the apartment building, wrapped in a tarp and duct tape, and buried under a pile of trash, and she had been shot four times. Lovejoy admitted to police that he killed her. He claimed she'd attacked him Uh and pushed him down the stairs and then tried to shoot him, but the gun didn't fire, so he picked it up and shot her to protect himself. Yeah, sure. And he then rolled her body in a tarp and wrapped it in duct tape and brought it down to the basement and piled trash over it. Which you would do if in that case, if you were protecting yourself. and what you would do. At the sentencing hearing, the defense argued that Lovejoy had suffered a traumatic brain injury in 2012 and a neurologist from Florida testifying by Zoom because I guess there weren't any other neurologists between here and Florida, which is well over a thousand miles away. But she testified that tests showed his brain did show signs of traumatic brain injury. An MRI of his brain showed structural damage and an electroencephalogram. EEG, which measures electrical activity in the brain, showed changes in his function. The doctor, Lisa Avery, said the injury can cause problems with memory, a lack of ability to control impulses, and some patients with them can be hypervigilant, short-fused, and cannot process information. That sounds like me. Because the defense was trying to argue for a shorter sentence. He could have gotten a maximum 45 years. The prosecution said that Lovejoy's crime was planned, not impulsive, and a traumatic brain injury does not cause someone to become an abuser or commit a homicide. Katie Sibley, the prosecutor, said Lovejoy was also abusive to Sousa before his brain injury, which is true. Mm-hmm. Um, Bill Stokes, the judge, said he hmm. could not discount the brain injury, but also that Lovejoy's conduct made it clear he knew what he was doing and that he had the cognitive skills to understand reality. Mm-hmm. Specifically, Stokes pointed out how Lovejoy cleaned up the crime scene and hid 
Melissa Sousa's body, while their children were at school, concocted a story and created text messages and Facebook posts Mm. pretending Sousa was still alive. And he acted like he was still looking for Sousa, even when he knew she was dead in the basement, (sighs) wrapped in a tarp and ducked And if you want to listen to the whole thing, um, it was December 2019, episode 71. Bill Stokes, the judge. Oh, and um, Bill Stokes, I went to, in January, I went to a 50th anniversary thing for the Augusta Civic Center, where I saw my first concert, Bob Dylan and the Rolling Thunder Review in November 1975. (laughs) I know the way you said it made it sound like you saw the first concert at the thing. It's like, Bob Dylan um, But I had this thing, because they're going to have this year of stuff, but they had this gala event that had pretty good free food and bill stokes and his party were sitting at the table next to the one i was at hmm. i sat with mike mishu who's an augusta city councilor who i went to high school oh, not with. the one that ran for uh no not the one who ran for governor this was mike Shu mishu of augusta maine we had a grand old time we hadn't talked in 40 years. I don't think so. We caught up. They raffled off a whole bunch of mostly tickets to things at the Civic Center this year, which I did not win. But Bill Stokes did win. I think he won two tickets to a comedy show. And I tried to take a picture to send to you, (laughs) but it was all blurry because I was, I guess, so excited. And I was so excited to see Bill Stokes. And I had a glass of cider. I know him (laughs) anyway because I was on a panel with him at an author um, thing once. He's an author? I don't think he is, but it was at that thing up in Bar Harbor that I... But anyway, he was... I don't think he's written a book. I can't even remember what the topic was of the panel. We're going way down memory lane. Anyway, at this... I know. At the sentencing last week, Stokes said it was clear Sousa was a wonderful woman and a hard worker. I don't know if you guys remember, but she worked at Dunkin' Donuts in Waterville, who took care of her daughters and also took care of Lovejoy. The judge says Sousa stayed with Lovejoy for as long as she could because she knew he would react with violence as she left. And this is a quote from Bill Stokes, the judge. Sometimes you wish she had left. You wish she had left many years ago, but she didn't. I believe she probably did it because of her children and because of whatever loved remained from her towards Nicholas. But she knew her life depended on her leaving. The future of her twins depended on her leaving. It was just a matter of how to do it. And in her case, she was not able to do it safely. Nicholas Lovejoy, the worst, the most incongruous name for a criminal, Lovejoy. I know. His his lawyer, Scott Hess, said they expect to file the appeal within the next week. After the sentencing, the prosecutor, Katie Sibley, said it was good that Stokes, the judge, recognized the case was about domestic violence. She said that the case helped show why it can be hard for victims of domestic abuse to leave their abusers and how it is important for those in similar situations to reach out for help and escape the abuse. And it's true. I mean, people do have PTSD, traumatic brain injury, behavioral health conditions, and all sorts of things. Those do not make you a murderer. What makes you a murderer are your actions, the toxic male entitlement that allows men to treat women a certain way and allows women to be treated a certain way, and the fact that women are considered possessions. There are millions of people in the world with traumatic brain injuries who would never dream of killing their wife, the mother of their kids. Yeah, it's about behavior, not about right. what's wrong with your right. brain. He knew, he knew what not, he, he was kn- doing. He knows it's not right to beat up a woman she, and to kill somebody. You know, you have to listen to the other episode. I don't want to go through the whole thing, but her friend said she was finally leaving him, his abuse. But yep. he had been abusive well before he suffered this traumatic brain injury. Well, we say it all the time, but it's worth saying again. 
People shouldn't keep asking, why do women stay? Why do women put up with it? Blah, blah, blah. People should start asking, why are men allowed to behave the way they're allowed to? In fact, I texted you a thing about a guy who had gone cross country to meet a 14 or 15 year old girl he had met online and he was posing Mm -hmm. as whatever he was posing as and he ended up killing i think her family or whatever Uh, the police chief his whole thing was telling people what not to do online yes telling girls and women what not to do and i'm like where's the stuff about men and how they should be behaving do we just take it for granted Okay, men are going to act this way, so it's up for us to protect ourselves and then be blamed when we don't protect ourselves enough to keep ourselves from getting killed. We can talk about it forever, but you have an episode. Yes, I do. And so this is interesting because, as I've said before, when I am not sure, I'm looking for ideas. Before you ever do a podcast, you think, wow, there's so many things I would love to do. And anyone that has a podcast knows yeah, there might be. But when you're trying to think about what to write about, sometimes you're just like, oh, you can't have to think. be feeling it. Like I've said before, I take pictures. I'll snap a picture if I'm reading the newspaper or magazine or take a screenshot of something. So I was looking through my pictures and this one was at the beginning of my pictures. And I realized it was before we even had a podcast. So I must have taken a snapshot of the article maybe to just send to you because I thought it was interesting, but it was well before it was September of 2016. So, so it we was had a couple events. It was a couple months before we even decided. And I didn't know the outcome of this or anything. It was just this one headline. And it's not a main story. It actually takes place. It's Montana, Washington, Idaho, almost in Liz's area, but not really, but in her region. My sources were, obviously I use newspapers.com for most of them, the Independent Record, which is in Helena, Montana, the Billings Daily Gazette, the Montana Standard, which is in Butte, the Great Falls Tribune, dailymail.com from the UK, the Federal Bureau of Investigation Ooh. Freedom of Information Act Library online. Oh. It's worth it to see if a case this case, I think, was online because it was closed to over with. I had never seen one online before yeah, like that. that's exciting that you found that resource. I, I actually got a lot of information from it. Details and stuff. Right. The, the details are what makes it the story. Okay, so Tuesday, September 6, 2016, was a warm day in Montana, although it was cloudy and windy. Rita Mays, age 47, got ready to leave Helena, where she'd been visiting family. At about 11 a.m., she stopped at the Holiday Gas Station on Interstate 19 and filled her tank with gas. She was heading home to Great Falls, about 91 miles northeast. The drive should have taken about an hour and a half. At about 11.25, Rita called her husband, Bob. She told him she decided to stop in and see her mom before leaving town. But four hours later, Rita still hadn't shown up or called. Bob kept trying to call Rita, but there was no answer. At 5.30, six hours after Bob had last spoken to Rita, he was really worried. He called Rochelle, their 23-year-old daughter. The two of them started calling family members trying to track down Rita. No one had seen her. Some family members reportedly drove the route looking for Rita's car, and Bob and Rochelle called local hospitals to see if she'd been admitted. Almost three hours later, at 8.20 p.m., which was 10 hours after Bob last spoke to his wife, and about eight and a half hours after she should have been home, Bob and Rochelle reported Rita missing to the Great Falls Police. To their credit, 
the police seemed to take it seriously. By 9 p.m., the police were trying to locate Rita's phone signal. At 10.25, Rita called her husband, Bob. Rochelle was there at the time with her dad. Rochelle got on her phone and called the police to tell them what was going on. Rita told Bob and Rochelle that she was calling from the trunk of a car. She wasn't sure if it was her car or someone else's. Mm-hmm. Rita told them she had been hit on the head when she got out of the car to rest up near Wolf Creek, about a 35 mile drive north of Helena. A large man attacked her and she woke up in the trunk. And that was the headline I read that caught my eye. It said kidnapped woman called family from trunk of car or something like that. It was a, just a small blurb. I'm like, oh, that looks interesting. And I took a picture and then I totally forgot about it. By 11 p.m., Rita's phone had been traced to Washington State near Spokane, 325 miles west from her home. The Helena Police Department called the Spokane County Sheriff's Department in Washington State to tell them that Rita was thought to be in their area. Just want to say my times, and I mentioned this later too, the times are going to be, might be messed up because... The time zone in Washington state is an hour earlier than the time zone in Idaho. So some of the times are weird. Okay. And, but it doesn't really change the overall story. Just in in case you think the time sounds weird, that's why. At 1230 AM Wednesday, September 7th, Rita's car, a black 2005 Pontiac Grand Prix was found in a parking lot near the airport in Spokane. When police looked in the trunk, they found Rita's body. On Thursday, September 8th, The media reported the story, and it was reprinted around the world. Even the Daily Mail online Mm -hmm. had a long story, much of it inaccurate, Mm -hmm. but it did have some good photos. The Daily Mail online, because I've checked them for a couple of my stories, I think they have like a U.S. digital presence now, and they try to do kind of sensationalistic type U.S. stories, but they frequently get stuff wrong and i think part of it is just cultural differences and stuff they frequently get their facts wrong they do have good quotes from people that no one else has but then i always wonder so is the yes i have the exact same yes even nancy grace did a segment about it although i admit i did not try to find it the first reports didn't say how Rita died, but Lewis and Clark County Sheriff Leo Dutton told reporters it was apparent homicide. When asked if the attack on Rita was random, Sheriff Dutton said, it's too early to tell. We would suspect now it's thought to be random. <laughs> well, at least he didn't say people have nothing to worry about. Or I know. Police said they had a photograph of a, quote, person of interest, although they didn't release it right away. Video from a convenience store surveillance camera was being studied, and they said they would release the photo later. By Thursday, more information came out as reporters interviewed Bob and Rochelle Mays. Rochelle said she and her father talked to Rita for about 10 minutes. Rita was sobbing and crying so much she was hard to understand. Rochelle said... She said through my dad that she had been hit and she was in a trunk and she didn't know if it was her trunk or not. She didn't know where she was and she had been driving for a really long time. Rochelle called the police officer who had taken the initial missing persons report. She said every single thing my mom was saying to my dad, my dad was saying out loud and I was telling the officer. Rita told Bob and Rochelle that she was overpowered by a quote massive guy about six foot five wearing a black hoodie. Rochelle said it makes no sense. They could have taken the car, could have taken money from her and then they leave the car there. And that's because this is an evil monster of a person. Rochelle told the Great Falls Tribune, she traveled with a gun and she knew he had her gun and she was terrified. He kept her in the trunk 12 hours. I told her that I loved her. That's the last thing she heard. After that, the phone either went dead 
or Rita didn't pick up when they tried to call her back. Quote, the phone just cut out after about 10 minutes. We don't know if she hung up or what. By the time we contacted police at 8.30, she had been gone for nine hours and we didn't even know it. Sheriff Dutton said, we do know that Rita was in Helena visiting her relative earlier that day. She fueled up and was headed back to Great Falls and stopped at a rest area, which she thought was south of Craig someplace. Police did a nationwide license plate search, and Rita's license plate had been read by a license plate reader in Post Falls, Idaho, which is just east of Spokane. And just a word about the geography, for those of you not familiar with that part of the world, I myself have never been there, but the area where Rita was traveling is where that skinny northern leg of Idaho sticks up between Montana and Washington. So in her travels, she hit three states. Rita's bank card had been used at gas stations and convenience stores in Kingston, Idaho, and Ritzville, Washington. Once it was discovered there was travel between states, the FBI was brought in to help with the investigation. And the FBI, for those of you who don't know, is the Federal Bureau of Investigation. They were working along with the various police and sheriff departments in different states. Rita's car was found in a parking lot on the west side of Spokane on West Geiger Boulevard. It was in an industrial park area sitting by itself, and as I said, it wasn't far from the airport. Deputy Mark Gregory of the Spokane County Sheriff's Department told reporters, we had received some information that the car may be over here in our area. So basically, one of the agencies started pinging the cell phone, which helped us get an area to search and locate the vehicle. Two days after her body was found, police released the cause of her death, a single gunshot wound to the chest and abdomen. Mm -hmm. They did not release the manner of death. In other words, was it homicide, accidental, or self-inflicted? A press release said her manner of death was pending. The state medical examiner's office said they were deferring the determination until death investigation and laboratory studies are complete. The type of gun used was not released. Sheriff Leo Dutton told the media they had a still shot from a convenience store that they worked to find the person of interest. It was not somebody that was involved in this case. Spokane County Sheriff Ozzy Nezovich told the Spokesman Review that the abduction story would not be confirmed, quote, until we actually find out what is going on. We know where the body was located. We know where she started out. What happened in between, we don't know. On Saturday, September 10th, there was a candlelight visual in the garden area of Gibson Park in Great Falls. I looked it up. It's a beautiful park. Great Falls is a city of about 60,000 located on the Missouri River. And after I do research, I always want to visit the places that I researched. It looked like a pretty city. And about Rita, she was well-liked in her community. She worked as a classroom aide and a crosswalk attendant. She was head cook at Great Falls Public Schools and the lunch lady at Morningside Elementary School from 2005 to 2009. After that, Rita worked for a while at a grocery store, Paris Food Market. And then for a couple of years, she worked at BE Aerospace in Great Falls, which is a company that makes like wire harnesses for aviation systems or something. Mm-hmm. They make. At the time of her death, Rita was on a hiatus from working, opting to spend time with her family, who she loved and doted on, according to Rochelle. Rita's case seemed to languish for months, at least in the eyes of the public, but there was a lot of investigating going on behind the scenes. 
and a lot of it was just waiting for lab results. The police in Montana and Washington, along with the FBI, had collected evidence and were following up on the many leads that were coming in. A few days after her death on September 11th, 2016, the Daily Mail in the United Kingdom printed a breathless story (laughs) about a man caught on video using Rita's card in a convenience store. According to the story, a tall, quote, dark man, about six foot five, came into the store and spent $24.52 on sodas and, quote, enough food for four or five people, end quote. Now, remember, days before, the police had ruled out the person of interest in that photo. Mm hmm. Or that actually isn't even the same person of interest. There was a couple of, as we'll find out later. A clerk from the store identified by the Daily Mail as Tia Mistia told the reporter, I served him when he came in here. She, meaning Rita, definitely didn't come in. I don't remember exactly what he looked like, but he bought a lot. Tia's photo was published in the story. A young woman with red hair and tattoos standing at the counter in front of shelves full of motor oil jugs. Other staff reportedly saw Rita's car that night parked in front of the Carl's Jr.'s restaurant that was attached to the Love Convenience Store. Have you ever eaten at Carl's Jr.'s? I think I have, yeah. They're probably what, hamburgers and stuff? Yeah, yeah. It's one of those, it's like Rob Roy and those other mm-hmm. highway attached to a gas station diner type mm-hmm. places. The Daily Mail got a lot of facts wrong, but I'm hoping the quotes... The quotes they got <laughs> from people are correct. I'm sorry. Can I just say, too, I just recently watched a doc, a four-part documentary on, I think it might have been Apple Plus, I can't remember, about the investigations surrounding Princess Di's death. And I didn't realize the differences between journalism and Britain and America till I watched that. I mean, I knew about the paparazzi and how sensationalistic the tabloids in Britain are. But, like, a couple of reporters were talking about how they, like, try to walk the line between... Not being wrong necessarily, but having it's all about selling papers and having the most titillating stuff and everything. And I'm not saying that there are journalists in America who don't do that. But for the most part, American journalism, even like the New York Post and Daily News and the Boston Herald, like the tabloid type, people do strive more for accuracy. And there's not that kind of winking about, and I think maybe sometimes the British, from what I've, the British journalism stuff I've read about stuff that's happened here when I've done episodes, they do seem to have trouble getting their facts right. I know. The Guardian is usually okay. Yeah. The Daily Mail, kind of off this topic, but I'm listening to Prince Harry's memoir. memoir. For good reason, he hates the British press. And I don't agree all the time with him, but they did print a lot of stuff about him that some of it was true. He said that a lot of it had a grain of truth, but it wasn't. I'm not saying that all American journalists are awesome to get everything right, but I'm saying they're just seem the standards and ethics seem to be different. And I say that from being in the business for 40 years. And Mm, Okay. As I said, they got a lot of facts wrong, but they did have some quotes, especially from Rita's cousin, Leanne Kaufman. Leanne said, I know she didn't kill herself. Her life was good. She was happy. About Rita's husband, Bob, who was 58, Leanne said, they truly were the best of friends. His whole life is gone. The plans they had made, Rochelle getting married and moving out, Mike, he's in the military, and Mike was their older son. They were going to sell their house and build a cabin, live for them a little. Rita would never have gone off the deep end. Leanne continued, 
At around 10.25 p.m., she called him and she said she was in the trunk of her car. She was totally hysterical. She said a big guy, she compared him to her brother, who's six foot five, had hit her over the head and put her in the trunk. While she was talking, Rochelle was calling the cops. He, meaning Bob, said she was whispering and trying to be quiet, meaning Rita. She was begging him for help and he told her that he had called the police. Leanne wasn't thrilled with the police response. She told the Daily Mail, I want the police to admit there was somebody. I want them to put the blame where it is. I feel like it's a sick game. If she had cancer or a heart attack, that's a reason. But there's no reason for this. She was just in the wrong place at the wrong time, and we want answers. The rest up she was taken from is very remote, so she was probably the only one there. She was everybody's friend, and she probably said hello to him, meaning the killer. Why did the police take two hours after she crossed the state line to ping her phone and find her? It doesn't make sense. It won't bring her back, but it might stop him from doing this to you or me. I found the FBI file online in the FBI electronic reading room. Mm. A lot of it is redacted. But it really showed that the investigators left no stone unturned when they were trying to find out who killed Rita Mays and left her in the trunk. And I don't think it comes up in my what I wrote here. But one of the things I read and I didn't find it again where someone said, well, what are the odds that somebody would be at the rest stop and attack her? And it's like, well, the Connecticut River serial killer attacked that woman at the store. It's not like it's never happened. It happened in our Pamela Webb there was a woman that got attacked at a rest stop. Right. It happens the, a lot. the odds are good. If somebody's looking to do something like that, that's a good place of opportunity. Wait till a car with a single woman stops and bingo. I think the odds are pretty fucking good. Leanne was not, a, Leanne, her cousin, was not aware of this investigation, but from the FBI records, it looks like it was full steam ahead from almost the beginning. The initial report in the FBI file said that Rita was on video at the Helena gas station at 1024 or 1124, depending, a.m. Some of the reports have the time wrong, like I said, because of time zone changes, so you just have to go with it. At about 4 p.m., Rita's license plate was read by a plate reader on a highway overpass in Kingston, Idaho. Rita's debit card was also used at the Quick Stop, spelled K-W-I-K, at 414 in Kingston, Idaho. It was used again at a gas station in Ritzville, Washington at 8.55 p.m. An officer, and just so you know, all the names are redacted, so I'll either say redacted or blank if, or just not say anything okay. if there's no name. An officer from the Shoshone County Sheriff's Office in Idaho went to the quick stop to interview the clerk and look at video footage. When Rita's card was used later in Ritzville, Washington, the clerk at that store said a man and a woman were shopping at the time. What happened was they got this still photo of this couple that was in the store on her later stop. When police were investigating, they took this photo to the quick stop, which is where she had stopped before, to see if that man and woman had been in that store as well. Okay. To see if she had been followed. The deputy also showed the clerk in Kingston a photo of Rita and the photos of the couple from Ritzville. The clerk hadn't seen any of them in the store around 4.14 the day Rita disappeared. The deputy and the store clerk watched hours of surveillance video Mm. from the Quick Stop store's camera, but didn't see Rita in the store or this couple. The deputy didn't think that the couple had anything to do with Rita. There wasn't a receipt from Rita's card recorded in the store register, but it turned out when a card was used at the pump, that data was stored differently. 
Eventually, they did find out that gas had been purchased at the pump with Rita's card at about 3.15 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, which would have been 4.14. So they started to look at the gas pump footage. The clock was off by a few minutes, but once they figured that out, the deputy took some notes as they watched. And I'll read from his report. Okay. And take note, they use military time. 1503.34, which means 3.03 and 34 seconds. A black midsize sedan, similar in appearance to a 2005 Pontiac Grand Prix, entered the quick stop lot from Silver Valley Road, coming from the east. The vehicle made a sweeping left-hand turn and parked at pump number two, pointed towards the south. The license plate appeared to be light-colored, but no numbers were discernible. After the vehicle parked, Movement of an undetermined nature was observable inside the vehicle through the rear window. The glare on the outside of the windows prevented determination of how many occupants were in the vehicle. 1504.40, an unidentified person exited the driver's door. This person's gender was not identifiable. This person was wearing light gray baggy pants and a dark gray or black garment, which appeared to be a sweatshirt. This garment appeared to have a light-colored spot on the back, possibly a logo of some sort. This person appeared to insert a nozzle into the vehicle's fuel filler door and remain near the fuel nozzle. The person faced various directions while the fueling commenced. 1507.21 The unidentified person removed the fuel nozzle from the vehicle, replaced it into the fuel pump, got in the driver's seat, and closed the door. 1508-21, the vehicle's brake lights illuminated and the vehicle pulled forward southbound, paused momentarily at Silver Valley Road, and then turned right westbound onto Silver Valley Road. That's a very detailed telling know, of someone putting well, gas in their car. I know, but actually, though, you can picture it. I was yes, thinking, boy, he tells the details. It. Yes. Then I think of myself, and it's like, what would they say I know, about me? me too. The report goes on in the same vein. The deputy reported that they watched the same time frame from another camera angle and saw the same thing. There were two motorcyclists also getting gas at the same time as the person from Rita's car, but they didn't seem to pay any notice to whoever the person was filling Rita's tank in any way. The deputy also didn't notice anyone else in or around the car during the time it was stopped at the pumps getting filled up. In all the newspaper reports, no one ever mentioned the suspected kidnapper's ethnicity. All the descriptions said he was a tall, large man in a black hoodie. But in a supplemental report by the Helena Police Department, I read this. Sergeant redacted had Rita entered into the NCIC as a missing person. While conducting his investigation, Sergeant Blank received a phone call from Rita's daughter, who advised Rita had been kidnapped and was currently in the trunk of a car. Stated Rita was currently speaking to husband. Stated Rita told Blank that she stopped to use the restroom and was struck on the back of the head with a rock by a very large, over six feet tall, black or Native American male with a black hooded jacket. Now, this is the first mention I've seen of skin color, but then once it's mentioned here, it continues in other reports. And I don't know if Rita had said it and the newspapers just didn't report it that way. Or if it was an assumption made by one officer and then it just became part of the description. Because there was no mention of whether he was white or black because it sounded like she hardly saw him. Right, because she was struck from behind. It seems like an assumption that was perpetuated. I find it very hard to believe 
if he was, if she had said he was black or Native American, that that would not appear in every single fucking thing about it. And we know the reports aren't always accurate. Yeah. So my feeling is when you're hit from behind, you don't see who hit you. And if she had said ethnicity and it wasn't white, it would have been been in in every single friggin' thing you read about. I think so too. Yeah. In any case, it comes up in the Ritzville report. So the Ritzville report actually talked about the first use of Rita's card. The officer from Ritzville was contacted by Helena police who asked him to go check out the love station and see if he could find any video or photos of the person who made the $24.52 purchase. Here's a quote from the report. Officer redacted stated the suspect is possibly a tall male subject, approximately six foot five with a dark complexion. The officer didn't have the last four digits of the card number, only the amount and time of purchase. The clerk went through the transactions and found five from that time period, two in the store and three from the pumps, but none of them were for that exact amount. The clerk told the officer if they had the last four digits of her card, they could search all transactions. After a bunch of phone calls with other law enforcement, the four digits were finally obtained. They found the transaction at 8.55 p.m. at the gas pump. That was the time that was originally given, so I don't know why he didn't find it in the first place Uh but maybe it's the same thing as the quick stop they're recorded differently and maybe those other when they said three for gas and two for food they might have been in the store it wasn't clear but i think that's what it meant and i just can i just for a minute go back to our race discussion dark complexion could mean anything and people should be more specific i mean it's september it could be somebody who works outside who has a tan but i do think that they were leaning as you'll see towards native american right here's another quote from the report i contacted redacted at loves who located the transaction as being at gas pump number two there are no cameras in that area I reviewed surveillance video of the front door from 2048 hours until 2100 hours, which means 848 p.m. to 9 p.m. At 205548, I observed a tall male that appeared to be Native American walk in, followed by a female subject that appeared to be Native American. I obtained a still photo of the pair. I observed the pair walk in the door and then to the left of the off camera. I provided the photo to Redacted via text message. In a supplemental report, another officer watched the tape with the Love store manager. He wrote, I also observed the subjects, Officer Blank said, were walking in the store at the same time as the victim's card was being used. I watched them through the store. The female went into the restroom and then the male continued to walk around the store. When she came out, they both got food from the roller grill area and then went to the cash register. They paid for their food and left the store. The female at 2102.51 and the male at 2103.06. I contacted Redacted, who was the clerk that waited on the Native American couple. Hmm. He said they paid cash and nothing out of the ordinary stuck out about them. Can I just say one more thing and then I'll probably let this topic die. But in reports, instead of saying Native American or they appeared to be Native American, the police should say, like, for instance, they had black or dark hair and dark skin tones. Yeah. But instead of assuming an ethnicity. Exactly. The officer from Helena police reported that they called Rita sometime after she spoke to Bob and Rochelle. 
the night she died. I think it was about 11 p.m. or midnight, depending on the time zone. The phone was answered. And the police who called her heard the trunk opening on the other end of the line. Then the officer heard a gunshot over the phone and Rita said she'd been shot. There were scuffling noises and another shot and the connection went dead. A Spokane County Sheriff's report detailed how Rita's car was found. The deputy waited for the canine unit and the dog's name was redacted too. So people couldn't identify who the officer was. Oh, that's true. That's why they would. But react also, to the dogs. Dog, sometimes people try to hurt the dogs. True, like Ben in episode. But one, it was a weird. It was five. like it was it was a, like a bomb sniffing dog. So I don't know mm. why he was there. But maybe he's looking for gunshot powder or something. That could be. Um, but the dog sniffed around, didn't find anything to track. They went around the edge of the parking lot a little, and then he tracked back to the car. The police were worried that Rita might be in the trunk injured, so they broke the driver's side rear window, opened the driver's side door, and popped the trunk. When they opened the trunk, Rita was lying in the trunk dead. Other reports from the Spokane Police and the Spokane County Sheriff said that the coordinates of the phone ping were initially given incorrectly, so they didn't find her car right away. Mm. Still, I don't think she would have been found alive. And I didn't find any information that said how long she lived after having been shot, but I figured it was probably a fatal shot. Another responding officer said, I viewed the car. I noted there was a black purse lying on the front passenger floorboard. There was a pillow propped up against the rear passenger side door and a blanket that had been rolled up in the rear driver's side door, covering the entire view of the back seat when viewed from the driver's side. The key was in the ignition and all four doors were locked. It appeared to me that someone had been sleeping in the rear seat at at some time. I saw what appeared to be a small spot of blood on the concrete curb on the front passenger side of the car. I had radio call the victim's cell phone to see if I could hear it ringing from inside the car and or trunk. I did not hear anything. SCSO Sergeant Redacted advised he had found out from the victim's sister that the victim might be inside the trunk of the car. Given the information we had at the time, all officers present agreed that exigent circumstances existed for us to force entry into the car so we could open the trunk. Deputy Redacted used a window punch to break out the rear driver's side window, the same one the blanket had been rolled up in. While wearing gloves, I then unlocked that door, opened it, and unlocked the front driver's door and opened it. I then turned the ignition key to the on position, pressed the trunk button located on the driver's door panel, which popped open the trunk lid. Another officer then opened the trunk. We saw a white female who appeared to be the victim based on the photos sent to us, laying in the trunk with her head towards the rear seat and feet to the rear of the car. She was laying somewhat on her left side. I could not see her left hand from my point of view. She was fully clothed. Her skin was pale white, and she appeared to be deceased based on my past training and experience. Another officer attempted to find a pulse on her right wrist and advised that she was cold to the touch and had no pulse. I did not see any obvious visible injuries to her person. And I think one of the reasons they do describe every single thing they did Mm -hmm. is just so... There won't be there are no questions. questions. 
Another deputy from the Spokane Police or Sheriff's Department had a similar report. And at the end, they said, it should be noted that after I discovered Rita's body in the trunk of the vehicle, I did not call redacted name back as I did not believe it would have been appropriate for me to deliver that news via the phone. But it turned out police did call Bob and Rochelle and told them by phone that she was dead. Mm -hmm. I don't think anyone went to her house. I read through at least a dozen reports from the Spokane police and the Spokane Sheriff's Department. It seems every law enforcement officer in the Spokane area was there when Rita's car was located. There was at least a dozen reports about it. Another report had a similar account of the events, and then it said, I lifted the trunk lid by grabbing the driver's side bottom of the trunk lid. I was wearing latex gloves. As I opened the trunk, I saw a white female laying in the trunk. She was laying with her head to the interior front of the vehicle and her feet to the back of the vehicle, slightly on her left side. She was pale and did not appear to be breathing. I checked her pulse by grabbing her right wrist. There was no pulse, and she was cold to the touch. She was obviously dead. Another one said there was bedding in the back seat as though someone had been recently lying in the back seat. I also noticed that the driver's seat was set back in a manner consistent with a tall driver, which doesn't mean anything because I push my seat back all the time if I'm sitting in my car doing something. In the FBI file, there are several lists of the evidence they collected. Here's a partial list just to show you how thorough they were. And there were many different lists that they all had about the same things. Some of them more detailed than others. Semi-automatic pistol magazines, cigarette boxes, empty, hair, swab from steering wheel, blue hoodie, key, bullet from trunk, swab from rear shifter, semi-auto pistol, loaded magazine removed from pistol, shell casing, swab from curb, bullet, credit card from decedent, Vaginal wash from decedent, pubic hair from decedent, head hair from decedent, right and left fingernails from decedent, anal swab from decedent, oral swab from decedent, vaginal swab from decedent, blood card from decedent, pubic comb from decedent, slides from decedent, black LG flip phone, CD of cell phone data from flip phone. And there was more, but that list was just from a couple days after her body was found. So Mm. they were going over it. The tips and leads were coming in to police departments and a tip line. Here are some of them. On September 7th, someone called and said that the day before they saw what law enforcement called, quote, a suspicious vehicle. The person reported, the tipster, that the car was a black Pontiac. Quote, the driver was a male wearing sunglasses and a gray hoodie, which was cinched tight. The tipster, quote, observed the vehicle going westbound on Silver Valley Road, didn't see anyone else in the vehicle and wasn't able to get a better description of the driver. They had seen Rita's car in the news and was sure it was the same car. Another caller told police he drove past the victim's vehicle on 9516, driving very slowly compared to traffic. This was the day before Rita disappeared, so there's probably a lot of Grand Prix. Another one was watching the news and saw a piece about a female who was murdered. The tipster, quote, believes she saw a similar vehicle, a black Pontiac Grand Prix or Grand Am, around the same time period at the recreational MJ shop, which I was like, what's MJ? Oh, duh. It's the recreational marijuana on Nevada slash Francis. The male driving the vehicle was a male, BM, 
black, 20s with an afro. The complainant thinks it's possibly related because it was a similar vehicle. There was a lead about a white truck that had been parked in a parking lot for a week starting on September 6th. The investigator wrote, I responded and located the vehicle. The doors were locked. I looked at the ignition and the steering column from the outside of the vehicle. They both appeared intact. There was a Stetson hat box on the front seat, as well as a straw-type cowboy hat on the front seat. There was a garbage bag on the floorboard on the passenger side of the truck. The garbage bag was white in color, and I could partially see through it. It appeared to have clothes in it. I took photos of the vehicle. The owner of the vehicle, or the truck, lived in (laughs) California, sorry. But when police went to that person's house, no one was home. Someone else called the Lewis and Clark County Sheriff's Department and reported that they, quote, saw a transient male sitting under the interstate viaduct near Frenchman and Me restaurant in Wolf Creek. Another caller said that their neighbor, name redacted, quote, was driving his daughter's vehicle, a Ford Silver sedan this morning, which was September 7th, approximately 0700 hours, and she noticed him, quote, acting kooky. <laughs> then they they forget to redact her name. Her name was Bridget. Bridget states, Mal drove into the driveway, went inside residence, then came back to vehicle and started washing the hood of the vehicle, which was already clean and spotless. States Mal has a history of acting strange and thought he might be involved in an incident, end mm. quote. So you know neighbor and your neighbors are not safe. No. Or you're you're not safe from your neighbors. Another tipster quote states he has a theory on this case based on info on an incident that occurred when he was in high school. Name redacted states the case from the 80s involving a male riding a bus and traveling between Helena and Grand Falls picking up subjects. Caller believes this is a copycat case. Hmm. And I shouldn't laugh because they do tell you if you think of anything. A tip came from Spokane. Name redacted states he was going to Missoula yesterday, which would have been September 6th, and passed the phosphate exit. Caller passed a vehicle. Think it was this vehicle female had. Black male driving. Male glared at complainant. This was around 2 p.m. And here are some, a couple more leads. Quote, was traveling through Montana a few months prior, stopped at rest stop on 290 West, suspicious male and SUV with Missouri plates acting odd in her opinion. And another one stated that she was driving from Butte, Montana to Spokane, Washington on 8-27-16. Stopped at rest stop somewhere in Idaho and saw two males in a white vehicle. Made her nervous. And then here's another report. She saw a female in an older two-door blue or green or gray 70s model car at Wolf Creek Rest Stop 9416 at 0915 hours. Appeared to be nervous. I think this is the last one. Reported she left Great Falls southbound on I-15 about 1530 hours while driving past Wolf Creek Rest Stop. She saw a four-door dark car parked at rest stop. Male in dark hoodie was standing behind outhouse with head down. And I'm thinking the guy was probably peeing. Yeah, he no probably shit. probably didn't want to go in the outhouse because a lot of times at rest stops, they're gross. Right. There are many others involving the Wolf Creek rest stop. Also, lots of people acting suspicious. It just gives you a taste of what investigators have to sift through to find something that may be valuable. It also gives no. you a taste of how many weird, strange acting people are out there. And none of these leads or tips prove to be fruitful. 
Investigators gathered videos from all along Rita's route, tracing the route of her car as she traveled around three states. But the videos were never clear enough to show who was driving the car. One field case report from the Great Falls Police Department read in part, On 9-6-16, at about 2051 hours, I was dispatched with Sergeant Redacted to assist Helena PD with a missing persons report. Dispatched advised Rita Mays had not returned from home from Helena that day. Upon arrival, I did not see the vehicle Rita was reported to have been driving, Black Pontiac. I knocked on the door and it was answered by Blank, who informed me he was Rita's husband of 26 years. Blank also informed me he had made the report to Helena Police Department, HPD. Their CR is Blank. I don't know what CR means. Also present was Blank, Rita's daughter. I asked if there had been any recent changes in Rita's behavior, such as depression, anxiety, etc. Both Blank said she had not been depressed lately. Blank also denied any marital problems or anything that had been upsetting recently. See, now why He's, do they redact that when it's obvious who they're talking about? I know, I know. He had also last spoken to her at about 1040 hours that morning. He stated he had also been told Rita was seen at a gas station in Helena that morning. Blank did say Rita was traveling with a bank card as well as $100 cash. He did not know of any other forms of money. He also said he was not able to check the activity on the bank card as he did not know how to log into the online banking system. While speaking to Blank, I sensed he was not being totally forthcoming with all information. He seemed to be holding back information that may have been private or embarrassing to share with us. More specifically, Blank said that Rita had not been depressed lately, implying that she had been in the past. Mm. He also mentioned that she had been missing her son, who lives in Germany. After the story in the Daily Mail came out, the FBI called on Love's... Now, this is me again, sorry. The FBI called on Love's convenience store. They wanted to talk to the clerk, Tia, and the store manager. The manager said the only people with access to the surveillance footage were the four managers. The manager didn't know who could have leaked it. And I'm thinking maybe it wasn't someone from the store. It could have been someone from one of the many law enforcement agencies. Mm -hmm. Which I'm sure the Daily Mail was sniffing around them, too. Yep. Tia, her name was redacted from the report, but I know from the Daily Mail story, that's her name, told the FBI she didn't give the Daily Mail any information, and she didn't know who gave them the still photo of the guy. She also didn't know who that customer was in the still photo that appeared in the Daily Mail. Can you just remind us again what the photo was that the guy was who bought still- all the stuff? It was a still photo of a man in like a blue shirt. And yeah, according to the article, she said he bought a bunch of sodas and food. Right. And it came to $24.52. But we know that the $24.52 is actually the amount Rita spent at the gas pump. So I think the Daily Mail guy got that amount from somebody and then went with it. No, no, no. Tia said the photographer from the Daily Mail told her that they always take pictures of anyone they speak to. But Tia didn't know her picture would be online and in the article. Mm. She said the story was, quote, absolutely false, and they didn't even get her last name right. She hadn't given the reporter her last name, and that name wasn't anything close to her real last name. Mm -hmm. 
In December of 2016, three months after Rita's death, newspapers reported that while the investigation wasn't yet complete, law enforcement officials said they did not suspect foul play. The medical examiner said there was no evidence that someone else was involved in Rita's death. The search warrant filed in Spokane County said that Rita was found in her own car in the closed trunk. Also in the trunk was a nine millimeter handgun and two shell casings. Her car doors were locked with the keys in the ignition. Her purse with $50 cash and her iPad were in the front seat. It was also reported in December, months after Rita's death, that a police officer called Rita's cell phone, which I already said, but after Rochelle and Bob's conversation with her, this police heard Rita yelling and gunshots and then the line went dead. The FBI released a statement saying they were not looking for any suspects. In May of 2017, there were still no answers. Sheriff Dutton told the Great Falls Tribune, the reason they don't want to say conclusively what they think it is, is because the laboratory analysis is not back. Almost a year after Rita's death, on September 1st, 2017, the FBI revealed its conclusion. The gunshot that killed Rita Mays was self-inflicted. There were a lot of test results in the FBI file. One was from the Washington State Crime Lab about the forensic examination of Rita's car. One bullet was fired into the floor of the trunk. From the angle and trajectory, the ballistics report theorized that it was fired from within the trunk and that the trunk was closed when the gun was shot. There was another bullet embedded in a nearby building. The trajectory analysis suggested it had come from the area near the back of Rita's car, the trunk area. The bullet that killed Rita entered through her left chest or abdomen and went out through her right back. She was lying on her right side in the trunk. The analysis of that shot suggested it was fired from inside the trunk. The gun was found near Rita's hand and the gun was Rita's gun. There was no other DNA on the gun or anywhere in the car, on Rita's clothing, etc. that was not her DNA. The trace hair and fiber test did not find anything that would identify another person. Fingerprint analysis did not find any unknown person in her car. The autopsy showed that the only trauma to Rita's body was the gunshot wound that killed her. There was no injury to her head that would indicate someone hit her, especially hard enough to render her unconscious. The cell phone and iPad were tested too, and nothing showed that anyone other than Rita had used them. So as unbelievable as it seems to a lot of people who read about it, and especially to Rita's family, it seems that Rita had taken her own life. This was always a possibility from the beginning, and there were hints of it even a day or two after she was found. But it appears the investigation was thorough, and I'm assuming her family did accept the findings because I couldn't find anything to indicate they pressed for new investigations or anything. But even knowing she did it, the question on everyone's mind is why? Why would she stage a kidnapping and kill herself? Some people have speculated it was an insurance thing, that suicide wouldn't pay out for her family, but there are no reports the family had any money problems. The suicide doesn't pay out thing is actually not true. I know from one of my jobs where I write about insurance yeah. things that yeah, really? most yeah. most insurance policies will pay after a suicide, but you have to have had the policy for two years oh, if you well, read your life insurance. Yeah. So that it's not, I got this policy so I could kill myself. Not that you said it that way or yes. anything, but people assume, oh, if it's suicide, insurance won't pay. Yes. We don't know what was going on in Rita's family life, though, from all accounts. It seemed a pretty average and probably happy one. She had grandchildren she loved, a son and daughter. She and her husband seemed to still care about each other. 
I found a defunct GoFundMe page set up by a family friend right after Rita's disappearance and death. There were a lot of supportive messages and they raised over $18,000. One person apparently made a nasty comment after it was reported the death was self-inflicted. However, this just caused a lot of people to re-donate, doubling their original donation. The comment they objected to had been removed, so I don't really know what it said, but we all know what online comments are mm-hmm. like. One guy from Scotland said he made a wee donation of mm-hmm. $300. So I guess the Daily Mail story wasn't all bad. I wish I knew if there were other things going on in her life. Did she try to get attention in other ways before this? Did she... Tell people like Sherry Papini. Yeah. Well, yes, we'll yeah. talk later. Okay. Or was she depressed and hiding it? Did she feel trapped? There are a few stories that I was reminded of when I read Rita's story. In 2018, there was a car abandoned at the Walmart parking lot in Palmyra, Maine. The car was towed to a car dealership in nearby Pittsfield so it could be unlocked. When the car was opened up, they found a woman's body in the trunk. At the time, Steve McCausland, spokesman for the Maine State Police, said, At this point, it's under investigation and refused to speculate on how she died until the autopsy results came back. The woman in the trunk was 30-year-old Jenna French. Her grandmother reported her missing the day before the car was discovered. Jenna had struggled with drug addiction. Her grandmother told the Bangor Daily News there was no trauma to her or anything. It was her own. We're waiting for toxicology reports. Besides her drug issues, Jenna had mental health issues and lung issues that sometimes made breathing difficult. She had two young children. She had a good relationship with her children's father, but they weren't together. Jenna lived with her grandmother, and her grandmother was the one who had the car towed to the dealership. And the grandmother had co-signed on the car loan, too. But the grandmother wasn't there when they discovered the body. The Maine State Medical Examiner found that Jenna had killed herself with an intentional overdose of Oxycontin and hydroxyzine. She was found in the trunk with a cup of iced coffee and a pillow and a blanket. She had apparently crawled into the closed trunk of the Chevy Malibu through a passenger side compartment. A pill bottle was also found in the trunk. So it was a sad story. Another case Rita's reminding me of was the case of nurse Cindy James in 1989. Mm. There's a long form podcast on Audible called Death by Unknown Event, which is good. And there are a lot of other podcasts and at least one documentary about Cindy also. In a nutshell, Cindy was apparently stalked and attacked for years. And finally, she was found dead, strangled, but also with an overdose of drugs in her system. Investigators determined she had done it all to herself. Incredible as it may seem, a lot of the evidence points to that conclusion. I myself have gone back and forth on it, but based on what I've learned, I lean toward her doing it to herself. There is a type of mental disorder called a factitious disorder. The most well-known type of this syndrome is Munchausen syndrome, Mm -hmm. in which somebody makes themselves ill or injured. In a case like Cindy James, if you believe that she did it and she was mentally ill, the person attacks themselves and or makes it look like they are targeted to get whatever they need, the attention, the the thrill of it. I don't know. Um, My feeling about Rita is that for whatever reason, she wanted it to look like she was kidnapped. I have doubt she actually wanted to kill herself. I think she shot herself in the middle, hoping to be wounded, but not killed. But I could be full of shit. Maybe she did want to kill herself. I don't want to make it sound like I don't sympathize with Rita. Whatever was going on, she was in some kind of pain. Mm -hmm. And she sounds like she was a good person. Her daughter, Rochelle, said, my mom touched every person she made contact with. She considered herself a lifetime member of the PTA. 
Bill Salinen, the principal of Morningside Elementary School, said she had such a positive presence. I could really trust that she was going to take care of kids and build that trust. Rochelle said she loved her grandkids so much. Growing up, my mom was an amazing mom. She was fun loving and had an infectious smile and was goofy and a child at heart. And she had fun all the time. When Rita first died, Rochelle said, my mom had no enemies. Nobody would want to hurt her. There's an outpouring in this community you would not believe. I'm getting married in nine months. She's just going to miss a lot. And that is my story. Did you like it? I did like it. Sad, though. It is sad. And I wondered if she didn't intend to kill herself. Like, you know, Charles Stewart in the, you know, the famous Boston case shot himself worse than he had planned. You know, and he almost died. That was a totally different thing. And and it also did remind me of Sherry Papini, but I don't yes, want to give... and Killer Psyche, the podcast, she did a Sherry. Pa- oh, I haven't Papini. gotten to that one yet. But she explains fabulous. Practition. You know, and it's a disorder, but like a lot of disorders, it's not something that you can control with medication no. or. And I would be interested to know if Rita had any symptoms, even stuff that people didn't recognize as being it like well the only other thing i could think of was if it wasn't that there was no evidence that she was having an affair or anything like that but that there was something she was trying to hide from people and and she was using that as an excuse although i don't know why would she shoot herself for instance they found bedding if she was like having sex in the car they would have found that person's dna and stuff how about this now this is gonna be hard for me to explain but see if you can follow what i'm trying to say here maybe she didn't intend for it to any of that to really happen the way it did maybe she was driving home and she thought to herself for whatever reason whatever she had going on her head i just don't feel like going home and i'm gonna keep driving and with no necessarily (laughs) with not necessarily a plan in mind or anything else like that although the pillow and blanket kind of makes you wonder but there could be explanations for those being in the car and then at some point she's like well now i gotta explain it to bob what am i gonna explain to bob kind of the kind of thing where you can think of minor examples in your life where you do something maybe a little out of ordinary a little out of character that you really don't have to explain to people so maybe you compound it by making it a bigger problem without realizing that okay now i have to explain this so how am i going to explain it i'm going to tell them i got kidnapped and by then she's been driving all these hours she's tired who knows if she's hungry. so she's maybe not she's maybe not making great decisions and it just got out of hand and i'm not even saying she intended to kill herself but the shot she had a gun mm-hmm. who knows maybe she was gonna say she shot at the people and they ran away or something and that's the shot came after the phone rang for all we know maybe she shot herself by accident but what i'm saying is maybe there's no clear logical explanation for what she did but maybe it was just one of those things i'm gonna keep driving yeah for whatever reason maybe she and bob were unhappy and nobody knew about it or maybe she was just having a a feeling of being i was thinking about it she got married she was 21 when she got married because she'd been married for 26 years yeah and he's about 10, 11 years older than her, which doesn't mean anything except for maybe she did want it 
who knows maybe she just wanted to get i mean like you said i was thinking similar to you that maybe she just felt trapped maybe she just needed to get away she she told them she got kidnapped and everything after she had been gone but maybe she didn't realize like when the cops called her Mm. okay how am i going to prove that i was kidnapped i told them i was kidnapped but really i was just driving around and maybe taking a nap in the car too what am i going to do now right oh you know whatever and right. shoot myself and people and, do shoot themselves like that woman that beat her husband um right. i don't know what episode it was dallas the one that she like shot herself 40, in the love handle yeah it could have just been a spur of the moment thing that got out of hand but on the other hand another story i was thinking of was one i saw i don't know if it was dateline or 48 hours one of those shows a couple of years ago a federal prosecutor in New York City, a guy yes, who yes. did get kidnapped, and it was a very bizarre thing, and they didn't believe him yes, from yes. that outset, and it had really happened to him. So it can happen, but you have to think to yourself, okay, if because I was thinking to myself, okay, if she got kidnapped, on one hand, maybe the person's trying to take her to a second location to rape her and kill her. Yeah. But are you going to do it for 10 hours? Who knows? Maybe. Or the person was torturing her or threatening her to get her pin so he could take money out of her account or whatever but then there was no evidence of although bob couldn't get onto her account but the bank could have if the police had subpoenaed and that the bank did that's how they found those charges right you know there are reasons somebody might do that but like you brought up sherry papini like from the beginning of hers i I, the thing that made me think she was lying is there were too many quirky details and too many things that just seemed staged ish about it the story just seemed like something somebody would make up Mm -hmm. like rita's doesn't to me sound as much like something somebody would make up and there isn't we don't know enough about it but there right i don't know if if she was somebody that was always saying oh this happened to me or you know oh i'm afraid of you know there was a guy following me i mean i don't know if she did that because they didn't mention that and it doesn't seem like she did or maybe they're the kind of family too like oh she wasn't depressed she wasn't this maybe and this is total speculation but maybe more recently she was having weird behavior or something and bob just didn't tell anyone or didn't notice you know and you know i mean i have depression and a lot of times you hide it from people because you just don't it's not worth dealing with it's not worth trying to explain it not just depression but uh, anything anything that you feel like people are going to judge you on people who think they know you well but are just people you work with or know in your social life or stuff aren't necessarily going to know if you're especially rita sounds like somebody who's pretty good at playing the role she was expected to play you know somebody who works with you or sees you at pta meetings or at the street corner when you and your kids are waiting for the bus or whatever they don't really know what's going on inside your head and there are people who are better than others at not telling everybody blah 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 well she wants to make everybody comfortable around everybody feel good make everybody happy and and it's her job and maybe and that can be sick of it i know i was gonna say that can get and that can build up right and i think people's mistake with a story like hers is assuming she had some big plan don't assume somebody had a big plan if she had a big plan she probably would have set it up better you know weird shit happens there are things you know i live alone and stuff that i could be doing and it's like if i 
died and it was thought of suspicious in any way and you kind of try to imagine the story like i've told you before like there have been times when i'm in the upstairs bathroom and i'm going to the bathroom and realize there's no toilet paper (laughs) and there's nothing no kleenex or anything to use and i'm like oh shit i have to go downstairs to the downstairs bathroom but i don't want to pull up my pants and get them (laughs) dirty so i go downstairs downstairs, and i'm like if I fell down the stairs and died, <laughs> they would come in and say, well, her pants are down around her ankles. So this obviously something happened here. You know, <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? That, yes. that things can happen. I remember once when I was working for the paper in Augusta, there was a car accident and a father and his son had gone from Augusta to Lewiston or a town near Augusta to Lewiston. So they were going West for something, but the car accident happened. They were coming back East and everybody was like, why were they coming East? Cause they've been going to Lewiston. And I'm thinking I can, and we had this big argument about at work actually, from what I remember, cause I was working for the paper in Augusta at the time, maybe one of them forgot something important. We have to go home and get it. I think they're going to a hockey game or something. Maybe that's how they got into the accident because they were in a hurry to get home and get whatever it is and get mm-hmm. back. But everybody's yeah. like, oh, it's so mysterious. They were going in the opposite direction of what they should have been going and oh, blah, blah, blah. It's like sometimes shit happens yeah. and you just can't explain well, it. Well, I think a lot about it because I like to go on long drives yeah. by myself and you know, I could be up freaking Kingfield or something driving around. And yeah. if I got in the right next year, like, what was she doing up there? In fact, Liz and I, one time Liz was visiting, but we went to New Hampshire. We went to, that's when we went to see where Louise Chaput thing. But then we were going north and I wanted to take kind of scenic way back to into Maine. And I missed the exit. And all of a sudden we were like in Vermont. <laughs> And I think I knew, and I'm like, oh, we'll get off the next exit. But, you know, you get to a certain point and there aren't, there is not a next yes. exit. Yes. We were on 89, I think. And we ended yep. up in Vermont. Yep. And then we got on like route two to come back, yep. which is a two lane. And, and I was saying that to Liz, you know, if we got in an accident and by now it was like sunset and stuff, but I think it was yeah. like August or September. And um, if we got in an accident, people were like, what were they doing in Vermont? What are they doing in St. Johnsbury? They were only going to New Hampshire. You know, ooh, what's this? You know, did they just pick like up a Maura hitchhiker? Or, yeah, just like Maura Murray. Exactly. Well, that happened with one time Gordon and I were going down to... Uh, to Washington, D.C. I don't know why we... Oh, it was for, for his nephew's press. We were going to stay with Aunt Nina and Uncle Lloyd. We decided to take Route 1 all the way because he wanted to take pictures. Yeah, and it took yeah. forever. And this yeah. was way before GPS or anything. Right. We are using maps. And he has... I didn't realize it until... I don't know how long it took me to realize. He has some kind of map dyslexia. <laughs> And I was driving when we got to like the greater metropolitan New York area on Route 1. It was not signed very well. We were in Yonkers driving around. Oh, it'd be like bonfire of the vanities. I told Gordon, I said, if something happens to us here, people are going to be like, why? Why are they buying drugs? And of course, Aunt Nina was all concerned because it took us forever to get down. Like that time I peed my pants in Bennington, Vermont. Uh, yeah, I won't tell that story again. But so anyway, I'm sure the FBI were right. You looked at the file. They were very uh, thorough. 
And the absence of evidence that anybody else was there and did anything that she hadn't been hit on the head. So her story didn't match the evidence is what leads them to the only conclusion. And they were probably right, but you can't really know what happened. It's just sad. I mean, It is sad. And it's sad that you wonder if, you know, I'm not blaming anyone else for it happening, but that if maybe people were different around her, she would have felt more comfortable. I, I wouldn't know this because I'm not that sunny person that everybody, <laughs> that makes everybody feel good. When you are that person, my guess is, and you're the grandmother and you're taking care of your husband and cooking his supper and you're with the PTA and doing all this stuff, I would guess that people don't ask you how your life is going. You're afraid to... Well, you have that role. Right, you have that role, and it's an important role, and it's a role. Luckily, we don't have that problem. I do not have that problem. Do you know what's Mm -hmm. interesting, uh, speaking of my my personality, how people perceive me? I have had at least three jobs where somebody at my job has named me Sunshine as a sarcastic name. I've been called that. I mean, they use it as a nickname. No, but that was a good story. I had no idea what you were going to do. And I saw that and I was like, that was before we even had a... You know, I wonder right. why I did that. And then I was like, I probably wanted to look it up and read more. But it was before we even had a podcast that I no, said. But, but so you were. That I was doing but, that anyway. It was but, my interest. But it was before we had a podcast. But it was after you had started insisting to me that we should have a podcast. I didn't think that no, that was. But you but, there. See, I can't see the little icon that shows it's plugged in when I have this on full screen. Also, yeah. um, oh, yeah. probably some of our rambling I might cut out. Yes. I hope you don't mind. But, um, <laughs> so okay. ask me if I have an NNW. Yes. So do you have a, an NW for us I, today? I do. I do. Oh, I can't wait. <laughs> Anyway, let's get to my NNW. Yes, I'm excited. A Netflix one-episode documentary, The Pez Outlaw, directed by Amy Storkel and Brian Storkel. There are some people who are going to hate hearing me say this, but I I was not surprised at the end when I looked to see who did it and saw there was a woman involved. Oh, you're so sexy. I know, I am, aren't I? But yeah, I'll mention why as we get into this. Reenactments... I'm not taking away any points. The reenactments, there were a lot, but they were necessary and they were actually good and they were acted out. In fact, the guy Steve Glue played himself and they were deliberately kind of cartoonish. I mean, they were live, they weren't animated, but, and it worked very well. And what it's about is this guy, um, he lives in Michigan, in rural Michigan. He obviously has some mental health issues and he started out being obsessed with and collecting cereal boxes and sending away for the toys and the contests mm-hmm. and stuff, and then going to these toy conventions and selling them. And at one toy convention in the early 90s, he saw somebody with a Pez dispenser and the world of Pez collecting, Pez dispenser collecting opened up to him. What a wondrous yeah. world that I didn't realize existed. I... And, it um, shouldn't surprise me, but yeah. Uh, right. So the reenactments are a big part of this and it, it, they go with the storytelling. And when I get down to that, I'll tell it, but they are very entertaining. They are well done. They're not cheesy narrative cliches. I'm not taking away any points. 
there is some of that, you know, the person coming down and sitting yeah. on the chair and facing the camera thing, but not to an annoying no. extent. They don't overdo it. You know, some documentaries, they overdo it to the point where it's like, you know, racial gender obtuseness? No. Everybody who's in it is connected to the story in some way. Lack of good visuals? I'm not taking anything away. They have very good visuals. They have a lot of the story takes place in the early 90s and they mm -hmm. have good video. They have some photos. He goes to Eastern Europe. I don't think it's giving much away to say to get Pez dispensers and mm -hmm. factories there because they make different ones. And, and there are some points where there's actual photos, I think, from his trips there yeah. and stuff. So they have that. They have a video from some of these conventions shot beautifully on their farm in Michigan. They have a lot of old photos of him and his wife mm -hmm. when they were younger. They have horses and I'm not one of those kind of horsey people, but I think horses are beautiful animals and those are I shot like beautifully. Yeah. And the whole thing is very visually engaging and they use a lot of different visual elements, including like maps and stuff too, to yeah. help explain the story. So that's good. Missing pieces. This is where I have some issues. I'm taking yes. away a point. There are a lot of missing pieces. I know some may be deliberate because in some ways it's kind of this legend of him doing this. And so some of it's kind of mystical, but, and I won't get into stuff i know a lot of people haven't watched it so i won't like get into the all the picky little nitpicky missing piece things i have but uh, one major thing is he and his son the first time they go to europe and it's eastern europe right shortly after the the, the wall, uh, wall is com coming i always you know the i know how berlin to say wall i know Sorry. how to say berlin but I always want to say it the New Hampshire way and say Berlin, and then I end up overthinking whether I'm saying it wrong or so thank you. One of the big issues is he comes back with all these duffel bags of Peg's dispensers, and the way he's able to get through customs is because Pez in America, there's like Pez in Europe and Pez in America, and they have separate operations, never filed its copyright with customs. And so it was a bureaucratic a thing they overlooked but then the president the president <laughs> of america pez scott mcwinney goes on this vendetta against yeah. steve glue and steve glue ends up going to europe quite a few times yeah. and coming back with a lot of pez and my question is why didn't they just file the fucking thing with customs and cut them off right there and then bud that self-satisfied corporate hack who they talked to didn't yeah. seem to know he didn't seem to know that yeah that this was an issue but it just shows what an idiot scott mcwinney would be that if it were me if i were scott mcwinney which i never would be because he's an asshole wasn't ass but the first thing i would have been is how did he get into the country yes and i and i don't know if pez ever actually knew but the other thing i wanted to say is even though i know it's here and then my missing piece was okay so whole, i have a few more but go i on. just no, the I whole won't. logistics of how Okay, they found the factory. Someone just let him and like, like, oh, and we met so and so. I agree with that. I want to know how something happened, and there's a lot of glossing over. Yes, it's and the I'm yada saying, yada yada thing, right? You know? and, right, and I'm not saying that's exactly what it is, and I'm not saying that there's anything nefarious about it. No, or there's anything duplicitous. I'm just saying I want to know more. And I think part of it is, oh, the mysterious Pez Outlaw thing. 
like that time when Gunther or whoever gave them like basically a truckload of Pez. Yeah. And they have a photo, I believe, of the truck. They have a yeah, photo. Yeah, they had a photo of a truck. And, yeah. and, and Steve's like, but, you know, I didn't have enough money and I had no way to get it back to America. But yeah, it shows the truck going some, you know, and I'm like, well, he obviously brought a lot of Pez. I know. Back. And another big um, hole, I thought, was the economics of the whole thing. Steve was a collector. He wasn't putting these Pez in to sell retail. Yeah. Like, you weren't finding them in the grocery store that he was bringing back. It was all among the collectors. So did collectors who Scott McWinney hated, according to Bud. Yeah. I would have liked to know more. How did this have an impact on Pez's bottom line I think it would because help it was I, I would think so too because it was collectors collecting and yes they're paying steve glue thousands of dollars for like i like that <laughs> bubble boy one and stuff <laughs> it's not like steve glue is going into the grocery store and selling these to people who are buying the original pezes that the collectors would end up so and i feel like scott mcwinney probably spent a hell of a lot more money trying to shut down steve glue then these collectors were i think he like was it know. was an ego thing with him but i i would have liked even a brief explanation of how this it'd be one thing if you're importing pez and and selling at retail yeah. but this was these were pez dispensers it's different it's that like being circulated why... among the pez collecting and it community. just to me it's getting the the name of the product out there right. and it would cause people oh i can collect pez so i'm gonna go buy them at the store right. i'm gonna buy even more so i can have every pez that comes out right. every pez dispenser right and i think I and we I can talk to about a little more in storytelling because i have more to say about okay. scott McWinney. but um inaccuracies and anachronisms i'm taking away half a point even though it's not a big deal there was one thing that bugged me that they could have the filmmakers could have cleared up Steve was doing this in the early to mid 90s, but they're talking today to a Homeland Security guy, PJ. Homeland Security didn't even exist back then. I know. This was know. even before the first, the 1993 World Trade Center bombing yes. and stuff. Things were very lax. Yeah. And so the guy nowadays is kind of casting shade on Steve's story, saying, No, we never would have let somebody, like, because Steve was saying, my one of my strategies was to act like an oddball yeah. and then they kind of let me through and stuff and this guy's saying no if you act like an oddball it's gonna get people's attention and yes nowadays with tsa and homeland security yes. and you're taking off your shoes and, the same thing yeah. and you can't make but in 1992 i think it was much more lax there was no such thing as homeland security barely tsa you could yeah. walk and i think a lot of it i think steve's point was well made in fact in one of i can't remember which book it is by tom wolf um maybe the charlotte lamb book or whatever somebody actually does that when they go to prison if you act cr a little crazy people just want to stay away from you and i think it certainly with steve glue's case he had this long beard and look kind of like a homeless guy i think he was telling the truth about that like that he has got duffel bags full of pez dispensers once they realized he wasn't and it's not drugs. contraband right. yeah it wasn't contraband because pez never filed yeah. a copyright with customs 
but it kind of like casts doubt on Steve's story because the guys say no, that couldn't happen. But this guy's talking in a 2022. Yeah, exactly. Context. I thought the same thing. And Steve yeah. was there before. It's like maybe this guy's too young. He's a little younger than us or something. It's homeland. Yeah, why did, uh, yeah. Does I, not should, remember. I feel like they should have talked to somebody who was who would have been back then. Yeah. Because it was a whole stuff, different yeah. ball of wax totally to different. get on a plane and fly somewhere. Yeah. So I'm taking away half a point because i think that was a non-contextual way to make steve's story look more of a creation than truth in some ways and if you're going to do that you know you have to compare apples to apples freshness definitely fresh i didn't know anything about this guy the topic i also think the way the story it was done they did it in a fresh way and this could also be part of storytelling too but one reason i say i could tell it was a female filmmaker was the love story between him and his wife which is a foundation about this gets as much attention and it's not a side note or a little thing stuck in there it's a theme throughout the film she's his wife um who has parkinson's and so her voice is very raspy kind of that's one of the things that makes it a just a very well done documentary and not to be so gender specific but i feel like it would have been easy for somebody to focus just on the kind of noir outlaw pez outlaw Mm -hmm. spy type story thing and i think the fact that the love story between him and his wife is such a big part of it without being overdone yeah and it actually is very nicely threaded through the story and towards the end it's even kind of emotionally affecting yes. and i'm not saying a guy couldn't have done that maybe it was the guy's idea since it was it looks like it's a married couple or maybe a brother and sister do all who knows who put the film together but i just feel like the fact that that got as much attention and in some ways was almost a bigger part of the story because things hinged on that. Yes. It could have been easily overlooked by a different filmmaker. And that brings us to storytelling, which I think is really good. The way it unfolds, like the reenactments, he was a machinist and had a tedious mm-hmm. job. And like but Tom she, Clancy yeah. novels, and it shows him reading a Tom Clancy novel at work and imagining yeah. the stuff <laughs> happening. And then when he finally quits his job, and this isn't really a spoiler, he says he remembers hearing that Enya song. Sally. Yeah. But the way they do that sequence with him quitting his job and that song playing yeah. and everything, the, the whole way the story's told... And I've watched it twice. It keeps you interested. You're not really sure what it is and what's going to happen. It's not the narrative arc you would expect. There are a lot of bit players that are all very interesting in their own way. Yes. It doesn't act. What's the word I'm trying to look at? I, I'm trying to think of when you take something that's kind of foreign to you, you can be kind of condescending toward, but you act oh, like yeah. it's like when rich people come to my town and say, Oh, we went to the sunset grill for breakfast, yeah, you know, like, Oh, aren't we cute? Go, or the way people like to go bowling now. Yeah. I, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong, but you know what I mean? Like yeah. the way people take something that's a part of someone's life. Yeah. That people are kind of flying in and looking at and think is a little odd. And they don't make fun of the They the don't Pez make fun of it, right. The Pez collectors are a very intense 
community and take their Pez stuff very seriously. And, and you had brought up, and something I thought of too, it reminds me of one of my favorite documentaries, uh, I haven't watched it in a long time, is King of Kong. That's because I have uh, it. Donkey it's... Kong. Is it my copy that you have? Yes, mine is... you lent it to me a long time okay. ago. Yeah. There are people who are obsessed, who are part of some community that take it very seriously and it's their life and we don't even know well, I used to go, it reminds me, the Pez convention reminded me of, with my ex-husband Gordon, he was a camera collector, uh, antique cameras and stuff. Oh. And we used to go, there was a big show, I think it was in Waltham every year. And we went several times. There were a couple others we went to. Any place you go, like if you go to like, I brought Jewel Hannah to a Comic-Con thing, like anything you go to where people are really intensely, right. all of them are into this one thing. And you're like, for the camera shows, I was like an outsider. I didn't know what they right. were talking about. They, uh, there's people are just so serious and interested in it. it. And it, it's and almost like you're like, as an outsider, looking at them, not with awe, but just with like, Wow. Yeah, They're really into this. And it's kind of like, and I don't mean this at all in a kind of sunny way, but the other day as I was writing my book, that's taken forever. <laughs> no, but I was thinking I'm how, sorry. and we know a lot of people who are artistic and that type of thing. And I was thinking, what would life be like not to have this aspect of my life that is part of my identity, not my identity to the outer world, but my identity of how I see yeah, myself so this internal thing that you have to do. And then I was, so the second time I was watching the Pez thing, I'm like, well, here's what people do. Some people, they do things like this. Cause I, cause when I was thinking that about writing, I was thinking how boring it must be to like not have, what, I know. what do you what do, do you in do? your life? Just yeah, stare at your phone all day. Storytelling, the bad guy, good guy thing that Steve Glue is kind of a Robin Hood or a, like a folk hero, even though he's doing something borderline. It's when he's going to Europe to get him, it's not illegal because they didn't file their customs thing. Mm -hmm. And then he tries to do, he tries to make it legit. And there's a part where everybody's like, well, a couple times that uh, Scott McWinney beat Steve on this. But my feeling is Steve won every single play even when it seemed like he didn't because scott mcwinney should have just been fucking running pez i know and I know. things steve glue did made scott mcwinney change the way they do things made scott mcwinney put out product lines that he had rejected yes and don't tell me bubble boy was his idea it was that guy mark right such bullshit scott mcwinney was making major corporate decisions based on Steve glue and so mm -hmm. Steve was winning even when it looked like he wasn't like when yeah I don't want to say because I don't want to spoil this part for people but Scott McWinney does this major thing towards the end of the documentary and people are like well St he beat Steve and destroyed him and Steve was destroyed emotionally and stuff but that should have been looked at by Steve as a win because Steve forced Scott McWinney to do something he never would have done and to produce something he never would have produced except for Steve. And it's funny because the people in Europe 
were like like that gunther guys like oh illegal you know in eastern europe what was going on there what he was basically trying to say is there are different priorities there were bigger things going on than pez and so they didn't give a shit in hungary and slovakia and all these places if steve glue was buying pez and bringing it to america and they kind of laughed at scott mcwinney that whole kind of storyline where this president of this corporation in america was making decisions based on what steve glue was i know was pretty funny and the fact that scott hated and i think it was an ego thing he hated the collectors he hated what they were doing and he could have embraced it like you were saying it could have helped the brand yeah i don't understand and repetition there was some repetition but nothing annoying it was all necessary to the storytelling beating the drum nothing they could have beat the drum and they didn't instead they played there were some nice subtleties like love story part was played just right and and actually that's as big a part of the story as the pez outlaw and and so that is an 8.5 i highly 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 recommend it i think anybody watch it again I think anybody would like it. Mom I and think, Dad would probably like it. I think Mom and Dad it. would like it. The um, thing I liked about Steve, too, is from the very beginning, he talked about his mental health issues. He's very open about them. And, and his son talked about it. Yes. You know, it wasn't like he said he was it was obsessive compulsive. He wasn't just saying that, right. you know, like some people who right. say, oh, I'm OCD because you know, I peeves. always have to have my, right. you know, my window uh, shades. But it also shows that for one thing, the challenges you think he had to overcome to go to Europe well, in 1992. Want, and then he went by himself. I know. But part of that I was thinking was because he'd gotten his routine down. But also, I think it's just another indication that people's brains and stuff work differently. But in a lot of cases, it makes the world a more interesting place and makes cool things happen. It's not the boring people who yeah. act like they have nothing wrong with them who make the world i know a more interesting true. place it's the people who aren't afraid to follow the things that other people would think is weird and stuff you know and well, the so, thing when you think about it like a lot of people might think oh collecting pez is so weird but clearly there's a ton of people that like to do it yeah, yeah. is it weird or just something people like to do yeah i don't know but the, the reason it reminded me of king of kong too was the fact that you're seeing kind of the um the inner workings of this group of people like right like there's this community so that people know yeah. each other right. oh they know i each know other. so-and-so oh like yeah that crazy you know. guy johan from austria or yeah. whatever that they're all like oh there's something well we don't really want to say what we really think about johan and it's like maybe within their community saying what they really thought about johan would be bad on tv but it, when we're just here watching it we couldn't give a shit i know what you Although say he was kind of crazy well he obviously thought the documentary should have been about him yeah. and they actually it's funny because he's not a huge part of it but that's another good part of the storytelling is they frame the story with him at the beginning yes and at the end and he's like i don't know why you're making a documentary about steve glue like it nobody's gonna watch that kind of thing and then, of course <laughs> i thought steve came across as a very likable genuine and his wife too very nice people Mm -hmm. telling their story and kind of just it's it's heartwarming and inspiring and when he was talking about the how he hated his job and i was like i could understand that 
Yeah, not too. that I hate, you know, it's just, but, hate. I just, as I said, I hate working. It's well, not the thing, job. Yes. Well, and I don't even hate working so much as, and I don't now since I'm working for myself. One thing I realized when I quit my last job for an employer is I hated being in this box where I was forced to do things the way I didn't necessarily want to talk to people I didn't necessarily want to talk to be on someone else's schedule and have to be concerned about how it, is the person who's in charge of me having this job going to perceive what I've said or done. The thing I didn't like in like, I thought of that when I watched Steve Blue doing his machinist job is you're doing this thing that you wouldn't choose to do if you exactly. didn't need money. Yep. I think a lot of people who are creative and intelligent and want to do things their way shouldn't have to work for other people because it stifles you, even stifles you in what you're doing. If you didn't have to conform to the dictates of others, even doing what you're doing for those others, if you could do it your way without any fear of repercussions, you could do a better job. Yeah. If we had universal health care, a, yes. a lot of people would be doing different jobs. Yeah. But so that's our, not the next episode, which is me, but the one after, if things go right, our sister Liz is going to make a guest appearance with one of her stories from the great Northwest. Yay. It would be our, probably be our we first We didn't have her at Christmas time like we no, used to. No, it was too quick a visit and stuff. But now with our Zoom setup. Yeah. We can Great. do that. So that's fun. Yeah. And so that's probably it for tonight, right? Yeah. And Thank oh, you. and check out our website, crimeandstuffonline.com. Yeah. Uh, on the more stuff page. I mean, there's episodes we don't have anything for. But for instance, <laughs> for our Arnold Nash episode, I did a graphic with a map and stuff that yeah. turned out pretty nice. And we have a article from the newspaper that has some more stuff oh yeah about and, and i sent you the the one with the what's his face ford and yes. i have all the affidavits that i mentioned that i got details from in our brian walsh episode yeah you want to read the full thing so people should check that out and we actually don't put all our source material on there we put some of it but we put a lot of little extras on there too for people we to try see. You know, and if you haven't listened to the Arnold Nash, there's something weird going on with our stats. And I can't believe people, episode 135, are not listening to that. So, but if you haven't, go ahead and listen to yeah. 135. You'll enjoy it quite a bit. And, um, but I just want to remind people to check our website because yes. there is often with with episodes and we put some videos from the news and stuff and, on be, there and if you have and, any questions or anything, just let us know. Yeah. There's a contact form on there, actually. Mm -hmm. And you can also reach out through social media. Twitter. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. You know, it's funny because I have three Instagram accounts. Well, there's our crime and stuff one. There's my personal one. And then there's my main great cities of the world or whatever. <laughs> yeah. I can't remember what it's called. But it seems like messaging on Instagram is for either bots or gross guys to send messages yeah, that's what i always and, get and i don't use it to message people 
But so I wouldn't say to message us on Instagram because I don't really check mine because like I have 20 gross messages from either disgusting bots or disgusting men. I don't know which they are. And it's like, have you seen me? Why are you sending those to me? You know, shit. Yeah. A couple times I've gotten like pickup messages on LinkedIn too. And I'm like, do yeah. you guys know what LinkedIn is for? I mean, Some this is a Tinder. It's, you know, you know? what? No, whatever. I know. When you have to block shot, somebody on say. LinkedIn, yeah, it's pretty sad when you have to block somebody on LinkedIn. Um, I think that since the changing of the guard at Twitter, our uh, Prime and Stuff account still has seems to have the same. I, I don't think know, I'm not seeing the people I used to see, no. and uh, the people who used to see me aren't seeing me. No, the no, no, there's not as much activity. I don't really like Facebook that much anymore either. So I don't know. You I'll know, start we doing TikTok. Yeah. You know, we have to do social media to like market the I thing, but it's hard when social media is the way it is. But anyways, okay. but oh, we should say goodbye. Yes. Goodbye, everybody. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Yeah. What an ass. Fuck him. Oh. He can go fuck himself. No, he can go fuck himself. They can all go oh. fuck themselves. All That's right. Okay. Exactly. That's a big missing piece for what are you looking at? I'm just curious. I was just playing with my sweater. Oh, okay. All right. For some reason that's interesting. So you'll that's, probably cut all that out. Well, I'll cut some of it out, but I'll leave some of it in. So And well, my thing wasn't super long. That's what he said. Ugh. Ears hurt. Mine do too.